Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. All right, we're going to jump in this morning with our introduction, starting with a review of what we have learned so far in the study of Hebrews. So you'll remember the first time we were together, I told you that our author is making an argument in this book that Jesus is better but he's doing it in two different ways. The first way is a theological argument that he's building step by step. Jesus is better than one thing and then another thing and then another thing. But on the other hand, he's doing it through a series of warnings, six warnings in all in the book of Hebrews that are building upon each other. And so I want to take us back through what we've studied so far and show you these two tracks as we go along. So first of all, I started us off saying that Jesus is better than angels in chapters 1 and 2. And then right at the beginning of chapter 2, our author gives us our first warning where he says we need to pay attention so that we don't drift away. And then I continued in chapter 2 where our author says that Jesus is better than any other human being. And then Patty Lynn followed up the next week talking about how Jesus was better than Moses in chapter 3. And then in chapters 3 and 4, how Jesus is better than the promised land. He provides a better rest. And embedded in that section of the text, we got warning number 2 in chapter 3. And this one said, take care so that you don't fall away from the living God. Well, then last week, Cassie continued on, helping us to see that Jesus is better than the high priest in chapters 4 and 5. And she ended that argument in in chapter 5, verse 10, saying that Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So next week, we're going to see in chapters 7 and 8 that Jesus is better than Melchizedek. But embedded between those two things, starting in chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through chapter 6, we have warning number 3. And I think it could be summed up this way. It says, don't be dull of hearing or sluggish, but show assurance of hope until the end. And so how are we going to do that? How are we going to show assurance of hope until the end? Well, this morning, I think we're going to see how Jesus is three things. He's a better reality. He produces better fruit. And he is himself a better oath. And so I loved how Cassie had us divide our our note section into four last week. I'm going to ask you to do that this week into three. Three sections. You can title them better reality, better fruit, and better oath. So open your Bibles up to Hebrews chapter 6. And I'm going to ask you to pray together. Pray for me as, um, as we open up this very difficult section of Scripture. So let's pray. Father, we are trusting you to show us something new today, to open our eyes. Um, would you just help us, Father? Help us to rightly divide this word. Would you move me aside, Father? And would you just speak to us? Help us. And give us wisdom and discernment as we look at this text. God, we trust you together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start this morning with how Jesus is a better reality. 
So I want you to open to chapter six, verse one. And we see that the very first word there is therefore. And that means we've got to go back into chapter five and build um, a little context before we jump into chapter six, verse one. So I think that what we saw in chapter five, 11 through 14, was basically telling us something like this. I want to tell you about how Jesus is like Melchizedek, but I can't. You're not demonstrating enough maturity. You need to move from milk to solid food. You need to train your powers of discernment by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So therefore, let's look at at verse one. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So what what is this foundation the author is talking about? I wanna suggest to you that based on the context of the book, I think he is talking about Judaism. So let's think about that. Judaism required dead works, essentially, because they required daily sacrifices. Remember all the thank you and I'm sorry sacrifices that we studied in the book of Leviticus? These reminded the Jews of their desperate need for repentance. And then we studied tons of purity laws that made you clean versus unclean. And these required ceremonial washings. And then we had the priests who had to lay their hands on the animals' heads as they sacrificed them each day. This was a visceral reminder of the cost of sin. And then uh, we had a constant reminder all through Deuteronomy last semester of a future resurrection and an eternal judgment that was motivating the Jews to obey. So these were foundational principles intended to point them to their need for a Messiah, a prophet like Moses, who would be their suffering priest and who would become their sacrifice once and for all. The foundation was important because it helped us to make sense of Jesus' purpose. All of these foundational principles were like a shadow of the real thing, but the real thing was Jesus Christ, God the Son, the human priest, the sacrificial lamb, the true resurrection, and the life. He was the real thing. He was the better reality. But for our audience and for us, at this point in time, Jesus had already died. He had risen from the dead. He had ascended to the Father. But before he left, remember when we studied in the Gospel of John, he said that it would be better if he went away, because he was going to leave a part of himself, his very spirit, to live in those who put their trust in his saving work on the cross. So this Holy Spirit would act as a mark of ownership, a seal, a deposit, a guarantee in us, the church. I love the way Paul says it in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. He says, In him, that's Jesus, also when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So with this in mind, we come to this caution section, red flag, red flag, something, something difficult that the author is about to say, but it's based on the truth that we just, that we just looked at. So let's, let's look at these hard verses, four through six. I think what the author is trying to set them up to, to say is, guys, it would be crazy to let go of Jesus at this point, right? To try to trust the foundational principles of Judaism, the shadow rather than the reality of Jesus Christ and the gift of his Holy Spirit that he has poured out on us. That would be crazy. So he says in verse four, for it is impossible In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Man, that's hard. What in the world is he trying to say to this dull of hearing sluggish group of people. Well, I want us to try to trace the argument back from the first warning up into this one, okay? So I want you to go back with me to Hebrews chapter two, verses one and two. Our author said, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So I think the key verbs here are pay attention and not to neglect. So I think best in opposites. The opposite of attention is disregard. So don't disregard the message that you have heard about Jesus The opposite of neglect is to keep or to comply. Keep hold of your salvation. Comply with the faith that it requires. Don't give up on Jesus. I think that was warning number one. Don't give up on him. And then we move to warning number two in Hebrews chapter three, 12 to 14. Flip over there. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So the key verbs here are to take care of your heart. Over time, believe, trust, have faith. And then exhort one another so that your heart doesn't become hard and, you, and you're led to drift away or to fall away from what you've heard. And then verse 14 is so important. It says that partaking or sharing in Christ occurs over time. We like to think of that as one singular point in time but we partake in Christ over time. We have come to share in Christ 
if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. This suggests that perseverance shows that you've come to share in Christ. It's crazy when you try to dissect the grammar there, but perseverance shows that you have come to share in Christ. So that's proven over time, and only God exists outside of time, right? So only he can look at us and see the whole picture. He's the only one who can see that. So don't give up on Jesus. I think that's what the author is saying. Again, don't give up on him. Don't give up on Jesus. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to those verses that we just read. We have our little diagram here, remembering how Jesus and the Holy Spirit are a better reality. So I think the author is trying to say something like this, and I'm gonna paraphrase it a little bit. I think he's saying, it's impossible to be enlightened to this reality of Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of everything that Judaism pointed to. And then to experience that reality, to taste the Holy Spirit and really experience the power that the Spirit provides, and then to taste the goodness of the living and active word that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand. The Holy Spirit teaches us and convicts us. If you have all of that, it's impossible to then fall away. Or he said in, as he said in 2.1, drift away. Or as he said in 3.12, have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. That's crazy talk. That would be futile because it would mean for this audience going back to the foundation. It would mean going back to the foundational principles of Judaism that pointed to Christ instead of the reality of who he is and what he's already done. To do that, you'd have to crucify him all over again. And there's just no way you would do that. At that point, your heart would be too hard to come back to repentance I think we see evidence of this today. Many Jews at this time did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And the farther they got away from the eyewitness testimonies of Jesus' life and from his teaching, the harder and harder and harder it would become for them to accept the fact that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Even up to this day, we have friends who do not believe that Jesus was the was the reality that these principles, these foundational principles pointed to. So this is really hard to understand. So our author tries to help us understand it with another very confusing metaphor, (laughs) right? And it's about crops. But I, I think what he's trying to show us is that Jesus produces better fruit. So let's read chapter six, verses seven to eight. Land that has drunk the rain that falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. My grandfather was a farmer and his farming skills became a gardening obsession in his retirement. And I only knew him in his retirement. So he was always growing tons and tons of tomatoes. And so I never saw the man sit down for a meal, either breakfast, lunch, or dinner, without a side dish of fresh tomatoes with salt and pepper. And I was always taking some of them, and they were delicious. They were so sweet, so juicy. I can't even, my mouth is watering right now just thinking about them. 
And so I wanted us to consider, have you seen something that looks kind of like this at HEB? They're red and they have the, the title tomatoes, but they do not taste anything. I mean, anything like my grandfather's tomatoes right off the vine. Did you know, and this blew me away when I learned this, that sometimes grocery stores will have tomatoes picked long before they're ripe and then inject them with chemicals that turn them red and preserve their texture, and then they market them to us as as vine-ripened tomatoes, right? They're not terrible. They're okay. But we can be fooled into thinking that they are the real thing, right? And I want to suggest that only God produces good tomatoes. (laughs) And because of that, I want to also suggest that it's only God who produces good fruit in you and in me. So we drink in the rain of grace and mercy in Jesus. And then his spirit gets inside of us and transforms us and gives us a new heart. So we no longer perform anything for selfish reasons to get anything from God because he's given us everything he could possibly give us in Jesus Christ. And so now the spirit produces in us fruit like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, all those things the spirit is producing as an overflow of God's character for his glory, right? So how do we apply that? I think we struggle with the application because we desperately want to figure out the condition of all the other tomatoes around us, right? (laughs) We wanna figure out the condition of other human hearts and we just can't. We can't transform hearts, nor can we perceive whether true transformation is taking place. We absolutely have to reserve that judgment to God. He's the only one who can see it fully. So our part is to encourage one another to live a life of faith together. Remember back in John, when the Apostle Apostle John told us that Jesus is the vine and his father is the gardener, right? Jesus is the vine, his father is the gardener. So we've got to stay in the vine together. I think that's our application. And I really, I liked this picture because look at it, there's fruit at all different levels of maturity on this vine, right? So we don't have to compare ourselves to others and figure out when we are, when we're ripe and ready for harvest. We have a gardener who does that. And the father in his grace and mercy, he's gonna, he's gonna take us off the vine when we're ready to be a blessing to someone else. Not for our sake, but for his glory and for the sake of those that he's blessing with us. So what we've got to do, we've got to encourage each other not to compare. And we've got to encourage each other to just stay connected to the vine. That's the thing that keeps us steady and secure. Together, we trust the Father to harvest the crop when it's ready and bless others with the fruit that he produces in us. And so we get to the end of this little section, verses 11 and 12, and I think it's so sweet because the author, he ends this section of warning and name calling with this great admonition of love and assurance. Look in verses nine to 12. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. I love you guys, he's saying. 
I know that this isn't going to be true of you. You're not going to leave Jesus. We are sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And then he says in 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope to the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. But I think this right here is the heart of the command, the heart of the warning. He's compelling us to show earnestness, to have full assurance of hope to the end, no matter what trials come our way. Imitate the faith and the patience of those who've gone before us. I wanna suggest you can't imitate people who you don't know. So find your identity in the people of God. And you, I promise you, you will be blown away by the encouragement you receive in the faithfulness and the patience of others. So we're a family and we're better together. How do I know that? I know that from the rest of the passage because he's given us a promise and he secured it with a better oath. So let's read that together. We're gonna be in verse 13 and 14 says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now remember this from Genesis chapter 12. These were Israel's foundational promises given to Abraham. Remember when God told him, I'm gonna make you a great nation. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna bless those who bless you. And then all the nations of the earth are gonna be blessed through you. They believed that. God said it to Abraham, but they believed that it happened. And so in verse 15, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained that promise. They indeed did become a great nation. They were part of it. They were Jews. And Jesus did descend from Abraham. And so through him, all the nations of the earth were gonna be blessed. So they had fulfillment of that promise, but what... What is this author trying to tell them is better? Look at verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So I like this picture because this is what we need, right? In order to try to believe that somebody is telling us the truth, we need them to put their hand on a Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And even then, you know, that people lie on the stand, right? So what did God do? Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you and me, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's before us. Well, what are these two unchangeable things, right? It's very easy to figure out the first one because he says it right there in parentheses, it's impossible for God to lie. So that's one thing we have no doubt. If God promises us something, he cannot lie. But what's the second one? Well, I wanna suggest to you that God gave us his word and his word was enough. His word was Jesus, a living, 
breathing, dying, resurrecting, word, an oath, a better oath. And Jesus was real. And the author's trying to remind this audience of that fact. He's saying, this wasn't some crazy idea. Excuse me. God really did come down in person in Jesus. And he really spoke to lots of eyewitnesses. And after he died and was buried and rose again, he appeared to over 500 people who claimed to definitely having seen him. And so I think the author is trying to say to this audience, remember, they're about to face persecution. They're fleeing from it. And so he's saying, make no doubt about it. We, we might be fleeing from persecution, but we have a real refuge in Jesus. And we have to hold fast to the hope set before us. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 1, 20 to 22. For all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That's the best oath we could ever have. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirits in our heart as a guarantee. I don't want any of you to walk out of here today thinking that you do not have an absolute guarantee of whose you are and who you belong to and what your future will be in Christ. Don't let go of Christ. We have the assurance of the Holy Spirit. And so he ends it by saying, we have this great anchor, right? We, we sang about it earlier this morning. Let's read verses 19 to 20. We have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So there it is, right? We've circled all the way back around to Melchizedek. And next week, we're gonna dig into that and and find out what that really means. But in the meantime, we have a sure and a steadfast anchor for the soul. I don't know about you, but I struggle to anchor my soul with hope. I'm so tempted to anchor to the, only to the things that I know, to what seems safe, and even to other people, if I'm honest, rather than to anchoring into the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And so I love these two verses of the hymn that we sang this morning, because when, when the author wrote them, she actually wrote them both as statements, not as questions. When we sing them, we've changed it into questions, but... Uh, that line about fear, it says that Jesus will safely hold us in the, in the straits of fear. That's how she originally wrote it. Jesus will safely hold us in the straits of fear when the breakers, breakers have told that the reef is near. And then the, sec, the next verse, Jesus will firmly hold us in the floods of death when the water's cold chill our latest breath. On the rising tide, it can never fail while our hopes abide within the veil. So just want to remind us of that chorus one more time as we close today. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. So I want to encourage us, let's anchor deep together as the body of Christ.
Let's strive to help each other to show earnestness, to show full assurance of our hope until the very end. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this anchor that you've provided us in Jesus. God, would you help us to fix our eyes firmly on him, to encourage one another to stay on the vine, to stay in him, to trust you to bear fruit in us and through us. For your glory, God, we want all, all that we say and all that we do, God, to be for your honor and your praise and your glory. Would you help us to do that? Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.